passage. If you have a Bible, I want you to encourage you to turn to the book of Luke. Uh, you will be somewhat lost um, if you don't, and at the same time, you might hear some familiar uh, words. We're going through what is often called the Sermon on the Mount, or here in the book of Luke, some people would call it the Sermon on the Plain, kind of a flat level ground on a mountain. And in order to understand the message today, you really need to know some background here. And the background hopefully will open up this passage of Scripture to you like maybe you've never thought about before. Because I don't know about you, I'm just reading through the Scriptures and I see things like little titles they insert in there, Beatitudes, Jesus pronounces woes, tend to skip those, don't you? And then love your enemies, and I just completely ignore that, right? But if you stand back and you take those out and realize, all right, what is really going on here? What is Jesus saying? What is Dr. Luke, inspired by God, trying to communicate? Things change radically, and here's the background. You understand that as Jesus goes up onto the mountain, he's reenacting and, and recapitulating what Moses did in the Old Testament, what was done actually multiple times as Moses commands Joshua when they get into the promised land to bring them up and he sets them before two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and he pronounces blessings and woes if they were to follow the law. And Jesus, as the new lawgiver, he brings them up on a mountain in the very same manner, but unlike in the Old Testament where the people couldn't come to God and would be killed if they touched God, people are actually coming to Jesus and touching him to be healed. There's this whole new revelation of God and new access to God. And he pronounces blessings and woes, not with separate camps, but bringing one group of people together. And specifically in verse 20 of chapter 6, he, it says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So this passage of scripture, he is specifically talking not just to the 12, but all of his disciples. And you know, if you've been here very long as a church, our mission is to be disciples of Jesus and to make disciples. And many people go like, what does that really look like? Is it just going to church? Is it going to Bible studies, mission trips? Do, what do I have to do? And you realize as you hear these words, it is a complete heart change. It's not necessarily doing, but it is being. Who are we to reflect, ourselves or when someone listens to us and sees us, not just in the good times and not just at church, but in the hard times during trials and tribulations, do they see us or do they see a loving Father, the God Most High? And that is what Jesus is saying, what true faith looks like. And we say that not just because it's a title that I made up, but I want to encourage you to look over to chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read, and this is the closing of this sermon, so-called on the mount or on the plain. And Jesus gives an example of the greatest faith in Israel that he had run across. Briefly, we'll just read through it to give you a taste of where this message is ultimately going in the weeks to come. Verse 1, it says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, which is a town just a stone's throw away from where this occurred. And he says, Now a centurion, a centurion is a Gentile, someone that was unclean, but he had a servant, so he was a rich Gentile. And servant is probably being kind there, more than likely a slave, but the translators often uh, like to use the word servant to kind of soften a little bit. But in that day and age, slaves were very common. Most of the Roman world was in slavery. Who was sick and at the point of death. So we have this centurion who's powerful and who has the wealth to own a servant, but catastrophe has come upon him. He has 
uh, a servant who it says highly valued by him. So what does he do? Verse three, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. So he didn't go to him himself. He sent messengers, elders, Jews, asking him to come and heal a servant. And when they came to Jesus, uh, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And we touched on that last week. How great a faith is it not to just give to the Lord, but literally give all the money for a new building project to a building that you're not even allowed to enter because you're a Gentile. That's the type of faith we're dealing with here. Verse six, and Jesus went to them, uh, went with him. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, so the centurion is having second thoughts, not in doubting, but he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to, to come to you, but say the word. So this incredible individual is just trusting in the word of God. Say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This Gentile who was seeking after God, believing in God, had such faith that he believed in the very word of God that he could heal without even being present. And so when we hear what we're about to hear, maybe familiar words for the very first time for some, others not, do you believe, will you believe, will you obey and trust in the word that we're about to read? And you might be thinking, well, of course I would, well, wait till you hear it. As a matter of fact, let me read through it briefly so you understand the challenge that's set before us. Beginning in verse 27, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, you have to be willing to hear, love your enemies, do good those to hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs or asks from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish the others would do to you, do so to them. Let's pause there. Now, all of a sudden, maybe you're like, oh, we're covering that passage today. <laughs> I picked it right. Oh, man, I wasn't sure I picked the right day to show up to church. Do we really have to do all that? Well, to understand this passage and the rest, you need to understand four specific things as we're about to try to interpret it. Number one, the implied behaviors of the wickedness here are not being approved or endorsed by Jesus as he commands these things. He's not setting aside the justice, what little justice we do get in this world. For instance, in Romans 13, four, inspired by God, speaking of governing authorities and rulers, the Apostle Paul writes, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for the, he does not bear the sword in vain for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we have to number one, understand God is not setting aside all authority. These verses aren't approving of evil enemies, hatred, that sort of thing. What it is going after is this, our reaction to it. 
our heart's attitude? How are we to respond? Do we have hope? Do we have peace? What is to be our reaction regardless of the rulers and authorities that God has set in place? Number two, you need to understand the teaching here is the beginning of Jesus' teaching. As a matter of fact, these are the very first commands that we get from Jesus in the book of Luke, all the way into chapter six. But we are not to take it without all the rest of scripture uh, basically informing us of our understanding. For instance, for those who will not work in Thessalonians, it says they shall not eat. So God has other things to say about those individuals who need money. And we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. But we do need to understand what Jesus says here. So that's the first thing. He's not endorsing evil behavior. There is other um, scripture that should inform us on what we're talking about here. And thirdly, what is the point of this passage? You'll see in just a second. The point is this, twofold. One is we are to behave, as you're about to read, in a way that isn't about us, but reflects our God most high. Our speech, our attitude, our hope, our dream. When something happens to you, people need to see you not as you, but they need to see God. Just as Jesus is Adam fulfilled, he is the perfect son of man, he is the new Moses, we, as we follow that, are to follow in the lineage of where Adam failed. Do you remember back in the Garden Eden? We are created in the image of God. We are to reflect him in all that we do, and sin marred that. So as we are born again, we are new creations in Christ, we now have the opportunity once again to reflect who God is, not just in speech, but in our life, our attitudes. And then finally, the fourth understanding that you need to understand here, and this is the hardest part. I don't know about you, but when I get up on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Friday as I'm looking for the weekend, my first thought isn't heaven. It's not. I wish it was. I would be much better off. It's about what tasks I need to do, what things I need to get accomplished, what problems I have. But you'll see at the very end here, Jesus says we are to have a heavenly perspective and not just a heavenly perspective like, yeah, but we're going to be rewarded as sons and daughters of the Most High. Great reward if you obey. And so do we have to obey? We are saved, but now we want to obey as true disciples. And then finally, it's this. This is the context that I saw and made me think of as I was thinking in this passage. This is a Colosseum that sits on the coast of Israel. It's one of the first things that you will see if you visit Israel, just because it's in geographical order. But it is one of the last things that we see in the book of Acts. You see, right by this Colosseum, more than likely the Apostle Paul walked. And as you can see, 2,000 years later, they're still having incredible music concerts in this stadium. It stood the, the test of time. And you can see the coast in the background, the Mediterranean Sea. Well, the Apostle Paul would have walked by this as he departed in chains. Not because he was a criminal, but because he stood for Christ. And he endured the injustice because of the name of Jesus. 
He was, took, he was taken away in chains to Rome where he would eventually be killed. And so he was walking by this great Colosseum, this great amphitheater, and what was going through his mind? Was it worth it? While people were being entertained and focused on the things of this world, was it worth suffering? Was it worth turning the other cheek? Was it worth having his freedom and everything taken from him just to be called a disciple of Jesus? So that's the context for this message. Let's look at it a little closer. Verse 27 says this. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, and that's the choice that you make this moment right here, right now. Are you willing to listen? Or are you going, well, I've got to make it another 30 minutes before lunch. That, that last cup of coffee's got me pretty good. If you just pick up the pace, Scott. Or would you really hear and let this touch your heart? That was a decision that people had to make. But I say to you who hear, four general commands he gives, then four specific. The first command, love your enemies. Number two, do good to those who hate you. Wow. He starts off with the toughest first. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. You see, 13 years ago, I actually found this command easy. When I moved in this community, I knew no one. I loved everyone in the name of Jesus. I was out sharing the gospel. I was involved in community projects, community groups. It was awesome. Years go by, people begin to understand what I'm doing, trying to share Jesus, and they don't like me so much anymore. Not only that, but people had warned me early on when I first came here of like, hey, you just need to know this about this individual, and they're trying to give me some wisdom. Because in any community, there are some really evil people. There are some wicked people, crooked people, people that are behaving in an unlawful manner in a variety of areas. And people told me that, and they had struggled with those individuals because they knew them, they had a background, and they found it really hard to love them. But I was blessed, I was new. I didn't, I didn't have any of those experiences. And so when I read this, it, it, it was easy. But you and now I, having lived here quite a while in your circumstances, things change a little bit because here's what's so hard about this passage. It's not head knowledge trying to understand it. It's about emotion. Someone who has victimized you. Someone who has done that so much that literally in your mind you view them as an enemy. But here's the question as we understand this. Which is better, hate your enemy or love your enemy? Well, at first, maybe it feels like hate, right? They're your enemy after all. That's kind of the definition of an enemy. But wait a minute. Does your enemy know how you feel? Not likely. This is about you. Who do you want to be and how do you want to live? Do you want to live every day full of hate, full of plans to do evil rather than good? Is that freeing or is that enslaving? Or do you want to live as a person who loves? And you are so free that you can love someone that actually hates you, that would consider you an enemy. So free that instead of planning evil, you can plan how to share the gospel, the ultimate love that God has for that person. 
Once again, this passage is not about outward law like the Mosaic law. It's about an inward heart change. As we change, it's only then that we can truly reflect God. We can come to church and preach and talk about God. That's not reflecting God. Reflecting God is when you take that and you apply it and you change. Loving your enemies, number one, tough stuff. Two, do good to those who hate you. Imagine how freeing that is. If you're that individual, maybe you've been hurt by someone in your past, and for years in your mind, daydreaming, you went over and over in your mind how you would get even with them, maybe how you would have done something different. You can set all that aside and just stop, quit it. You don't have to do that anymore. You had the freedom in Christ to just plan good things rather than evil things. Verse 28 says the second and, or the third and fourth general commands here. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You're like, oh, of course, I do that all the time. <laughs> do we? When's the last time you were driving in, say, Portland traffic? Got cut off multiple times. Or maybe you were trying to merge in and they wouldn't let you in. And you ended up off the side of the road. All sorts of things. Maybe when's the last time you were at Walmart trying to return something and they wouldn't return it, even though they're supposed to take back everything. Was your speech always blessing? Or were maybe some cuss words kind of worked their way in there, right? It's amazing if we begin to think of our own lives, what does our speech reflect about our hearts? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Once again, when I came here 13 years ago, I often thought, oh, this is easy. Everyone's nice to me here, not running into anyone hating me. I mean, they're not exactly responding in droves to the gospel, but this is pretty easy. But as time went by, people got a little harder with me. And I'm like, Jesus, is this really what this is all about? And I realized, wait a second. I was coming at it from my perspective. You see, when I was 13, I got saved at a camp, a summer camp. And everyone's there having fun. Not necessarily bad teenagers. Now, I know a couple of your parents are like, nah, I'm going to introduce you to a few. No, at that time, they're generally good people. You're not dealing with really evil people as a teenager most of the time back in the day. And I was assuming that, and I was assuming that as I'm thinking about sharing the gospel. But listen to this. People cursing you, people abusing you, those are the people that need Jesus. That's the field that's ripe for harvest for sharing the gospel. This is evangelism 101. Instead of responding in cursing and hatred, this is our opportunity to share and make disciples. Praying, blessing, loving, doing good. It's an amazing ability and freedom and power that we have in Jesus to completely turn the world on its head. They think they can influence us. They think they can enforce their power and authority on us. And yet we have the complete freedom in God 
to share with them hope and true freedom and true power. It's an amazing perspective. When's the last time you truly prayed for your enemies? Many of you have a hard time, I know, spending about more than two minutes in prayer. You're like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to ask God for a lot of stuff. I just a couple things and say thank you, and we'll move on with my day, and I'll let God get on to more important things, right? But imagine if you had a list of all the people in your circle even, maybe even outside your circle in our community, that don't know Jesus, and you started praying for them. Not a long prayer, just, Lord, save this person. Use me. Move in their heart. Let your Holy Spirit convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Give me the ability to memorize one simple scripture that I can share with them that might impact them. And you did that. Your prayer time all of a sudden goes out to here. It's an entirely different perspective. Living as a disciple is not religion. It's relationship with a purpose, a good purpose, the ultimate purpose. Verse 29, he begins to really get specific here and step on toes. Imagine that. Verse 29, he says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. We're gonna have a practice session after the service today. Uh, we need some victims, I mean volunteers, right? After about the fifth time of getting hit on the cheek, he'd be like, all right, I'm done. I'm going to the other church, much easier. But really, to the one who strikes you on the tree, cheek, offer the other also. Remember those four rules? All right, hey, this isn't meaning we're getting rid of the justice system here. They're not, we're not okaying assault, but this is about you, not about them. How would you respond if someone physically hurt you? The second specific thing, he says, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. I'm looking out here today and I'm not seeing a lot of you in cloaks and tunics. It is almost July and I see a few jackets, which is kind of crazy. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here. We're talking about inner wardrobe and outer wardrobe. And literally, someone who takes one piece of your garments and they literally try to take the other piece, you're standing there naked. Again, I don't see any of you sitting here naked. Thank you. I appreciate that. Right? More scripture that addresses that. But imagine being robbed of everything. How would you respond? I'd be like, officer, he did it. Arrest him. Can we impose the death penalty here? I don't, nakedness, that's, that's bad, right? We have all these emotional reactions and we tend to go over the top. But listen to what scripture says elsewhere in 1 Peter and this is so interesting because as we're moving forward, we're about to bring in an individual who desires to pastor Blue Mountain. As I step down, we're having a meeting about it today. And one of the thing that, things that always comes up is the idea of calling. Everyone claims to be called here and called there. Listen to the biblical view of calling in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. He says this, For what credit is it if, when you sin or beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So right off the bat, you have to be doing good. But if you suffer for it, verse 21 of chapter 2 in 1 Peter, for to this you have been called. That's your calling. 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he wasn't sinning, he wasn't cursing. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So yes, when someone slaps you on the cheek, the first reaction is to want to hit them back. But wait a minute, what, is, what good does that do? What does that accomplish? How does that hurt you? How does that hurt others? But what if that's the very purpose that God has for us, to suffer and then to grow deeper in our faith and to be able to trust in God who judges justly? Imagine that the freedom in that, who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Here's this incredible thing, this truth that you can be beaten, you can be robbed, you can have enemies who hate you and curse you, but they can't touch you. You don't have to let all that they do and say enslave you because you've been healed. You are free. Not only that, but God uses their evil for your good and for the good of others. Because when people ultimately see that, if you've been doing good, it reflects our Father in heaven and his glory. That speaks far more than any presentation that you can give defending the faith. Well, the third and fourth thing specifically that Jesus says in verse 30 says this. Give to everyone who begs. In the ESV it says begs. You're going to, I preach out of the ESV most of the time. It's a bad translation. Every other major English translation, old or new, says ass. Because beg, in our connotation, in our day and age, we think of the panhandler that's sitting there off the highway or in Albertson's parking lot. That isn't the meaning here. It's never used that way in the New Testament anywhere else. No other English translations. What is used here in other translations is simply the word whoever asks. Whoever asks. And you'll understand what that means here in just a minute a little clearer. But essentially, think of it as your brother-in-law that comes to you and asks for 500 bucks. Promises he'll pay you back. But he's actually working and he's in a tough spot and you have to decide, do you give him the 500 bucks or not? Or think of a New Testament. You've been thrown out of the synagogue if you were Jewish. You're not even allowed in if you're not. But you have been fired because you've named Christ as your savior and you're being discriminated against across the ancient Roman Empire, and you, you don't have money for food. And you go to a wealthier brother in the church and you say, hey, can I have some money and I hope to pay you back. That's the scenario. That's the setting that we have here. Give to anyone who asks from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Wow. Wow. How did the centurion that we just read about who had the greatest faith in Israel handle it? Well, apparently there were some Jews in their synagogue 
needed built. They didn't have the money for it. And he chose not some sort of business arrangement of like, I know what the, your rules are on clean and unclean. And if I build you the whole building, I get to come. No, he just took the money. Didn't give enough for a portion of it or a little bit of it, but gave it all, built an entire synagogue. That remember in the Old Testament, the synagogue is nowhere commanded. That's not, you won't find the synagogue in the Old Testament. This was just basically tradition that built up just like this church building. There's no command in the New Testament that we have to come to a building. But he did that out of his wealth. So it's challenging this. Whose money is the money? Is it your money or is this God's money? Secondly, how are you going to use it? How many of you here, just think to yourself, if we said, hey, sports camp is back on. If you're just visiting here, sports camp is one of our major outreaches that we do. Sports camp is back on here, uh, but we've spent all of our money. We have an opportunity to do it this fall. Let's take up an offering to share Jesus with these kids. I would imagine if we said that, many of you would give to that evangelistic effort. Like, it's for the kids. We're sharing Jesus. Now, think of the person who wants to borrow money from you, legitimately. Not the individual sending you the email. Uh, he's the guy from Africa, and he, with your $100, he can solve all the world's problems. Not a con game, but an actual individual. Do you see giving him money and potentially never being paid back an opportunity to share Jesus, evangelism? Not just give the check and don't say anything. Remember, this isn't all that Jesus says. Yes, we're to give, but we're also to share the gospel. So you decide in your heart to do both. You use the opportunity of the 500, the 1,000, the 2,000, whatever, to share Jesus. Well, I'll let you think about it, but 2,000 years after this centurion Gentile gave enough money to build a whole building, his testimony still speaks to his faith in Jesus. That's probably one of the best evangelistic tools I can possibly imagine ever investing in. Money talks. Don't demand it back was the fourth specifics or a fourth specific thing. Verse 31, a summary statement of all of these. He just simply says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's really easy. Uh, I heard a version of that growing up and uh, was told that every, every time I went to school, at one point I was out on the, the recess area, sure enough, did not apply that at all. Some kid came up and picked on me, hit him right in the mouth. Ended up in the office, and I had the best teacher in the world because I think my parents will probably be watching this video at some point if it goes out there on our website. They still never know about this, but I had a teacher that saved my bacon, not from the principal, but from my parents. And I got in a fight on the recess uh, playground, and I was in the office, and they're like, I got the long lecture of, well... What would you have liked to have done? You know, if, do you really want me hitting you? And I'm like, well, if I smack you or say something mean to you, yeah, I'd probably expect you to hit me. And the guy almost started laughing because he's like, yeah, that's kind of our gut reaction, right? 
hitting someone who makes us mad. But now, let's stop and think. How would we really want to be treated? As you wish that others would do to you, do so them, do so to them. How would you want to be treated? Well, I don't know about you, but every night when I go to bed, I go to the Lord and ask in prayer and ask for forgiveness. And it's amazing. Scripture promises that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness every time we go to him in prayer. That's kind of how I want to be treated. So imagine if I treated everyone like that. If I treated everyone how Jesus treats me. There's no more anger. There's no more greed. There's no more hopelessness. There's no more anxiety and worry. Jesus fills me with his hope, his peace. And he, com- he continually convicts me according to his word. Imagine if I was sharing God's word as people were being evil rather than cursing them. Entirely different perspective. Then he really brings it home. Verses 32 through 36 Quickly, he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Well, that's fairly straightforward, easy to understand. He doesn't leave it there, though. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. All right, now you're really convicting me, Jesus. Verse 34, and if you lend to those who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So he's driving home the point of, hey, there's a benefit here. And you getting angry, cursing, and expecting money back, you're completely off base. You've lost your purpose. We're, we're, we're living for a benefit, a reward. It's not just instant justice getting through life. Well, what is that? Verse 35, Jesus explains. He gives this different perspective, this heavenly perspective, this reward perspective. He says, but love your enemies, verse 35, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And he waited all this time to give us the kicker. It's the payoff. Your reward will be great. Last week, we kind of touched on this. I have no idea what heaven's like. I know what scripture says. It's difficult to picture and imagine. But what's the hardest thing is how can you have heaven plus? <laughs> like heaven first class. Because there's this idea, and, and Baptists don't like to talk about this. It's like, well, everyone's in heaven or everyone's in hell. No, there's those in heaven and those, and scripture says this in a lot of different places, that will receive greater reward. Just like some will be judged more strictly, pastors specifically, scripture says. There is great reward. So it's not only fulfilling and a blessing to you if you choose to live in this heart attitude of not being enslaved with anger and bitterness and greed, but there's great reward for you in heaven and you will be sons or daughters of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You see, one of the reasons why I was so worried when I was a kid and I 
smack that kid in recess. It wasn't that I was going to be punished by my mom and dad when I got home, though I would have. I was worried they would have been disappointed in me. Because they, like you, if you've raised kids, like the idea of raising good kids, kids that reflect good morals, hopefully reflect Christ. And they would have been upset because I was a reflection of them. And they don't go around hitting people. We, if we are really disciples of Jesus, have the opportunity to reflect our Heavenly Father. I love the passage here. It says, the most high. It's so beautiful. As sons or daughters of the most high. He finishes with this last verse. Be merciful even as our Father is merciful. In the news, three men saw a man apparently stealing something out of a building site in their neighborhood. And they were very just-minded and they wanted to capture this individual and they ended up not just capturing him but killing him. And uh, it's made the news nationally. And I have to think, their initial intentions were probably pretty good because if you read the articles over and over again, they're referencing someone stealing or in their neighborhood, you know, doing shady stuff. And if you live in a neighborhood, that's probably on your mind, right? You want to protect your family, your home. You're vigilant, watching out for crime. But all of a sudden, their reaction to that was radically different. And they let their emotions get the best of them and ended up in a death of a man, an innocent man most likely. We can choose to let our emotions rule us or we can choose to be merciful because God is merciful. And I will simply ask you this, which is more freeing? The idea that you want instant justice or that you're carrying around a grudge from years ago or the person that chooses mercy. Which person truly has power? Do you want to live as a victim or do you want to live literally as the son or daughter of the Most High? who is all-powerful. That's your choice. That's my choice. And it seems so counterintuitive because our emotions are all about our power and trying to get justice and trying to have the right thing done. But truthfully, you only begin to experience true power and peace and joy if you choose to be merciful, loving, good and giving as sons and daughters of the Most High God. I hope and pray you make the right decision this week and every day of your life. Let's pray. Father, uh, I confess before you and before everyone here, I, I need 
to apply these passages perhaps more than most. It's so easy to look at injustices, small things in our life, some sort of purchase that we made that we bought and we were swindled or some sort of minor infraction that a neighbor does to us that annoys us. Something that is so small can build up inside of us, Lord. And I just ask for your cleansing and your forgiveness. And as a church, we come to your throne asking for your grace and mercy. Help us to be merciful, not to be individuals that live in anger, but live in love and have that freedom, Lord. Amen.